You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to this session, mobilising across the divide, building a supermajority of strong support. We know climate change shouldn't be a left or right issue, but it has become one increasingly in the last 10 years. Big, fast action requires support across the political spectrum, and so this session is looking about how can we engage people's concerns and fears about their jobs, their identity, their security, their community, to really break down some of these partisan barriers that have, um, uh, have built up to achieve a kind of really strong majority of support for climate emergency scale action. And we have three terrific speakers to explore that, some time um, for us to have a conversation together and some time for questions and there will be a roving mic and I'll um, ask you to wait for the mic to get to you, stand up and ask a very quick question rather than tell us your last story. So, <laughs> um, First, we're going to start with Miriam Lyons. She's starting because she's terrific, but also she's got the most, the most slides of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, and why shouldn't she? She's got so much information to tell you. She has been the Executive Director at the Centre for Policy Development. She's a policy wonk, but she's also an extraordinary writer, has written for the Sydney Morning Herald. She's written books. Um, she's on the board of the Centre for Australian Progress. And at the moment, a lot of her time is taking all of this policy knowledge and all of this um, academic understanding in her work with GetUp on their energy and climate change campaigns. Please welcome Miriam. Thanks very much. And a quick up-to-date to that, uh, which is that I'm actually currently working as the organising director at GetUp. Um, so I'm thinking a hell of a lot about how we build the supermajority. So imagine a world where parties competed with each other to win the climate vote. One party trumpets how much better their plan is for fostering innovative new technologies. Another champions how their plan will be better at cutting power bills for people on low incomes. Another talks about how their plan will reduce erosion and restore the rivers that farmers and wildlife depend on. But all of them, every single party that takes winning seriously, competes to show us that their plan will deliver more cuts to carbon pollution faster than everybody else's. <laughs> what is the difference between that wonderful world and the one that we live in? So on any issue, right, there is a spectrum of potential allies from those who actively oppose our cause to those who actively support it. Now, I know a lot of folks in the room who are like veteran activists will be really familiar with this, but I think it's a helpful lens through which to think about the challenge of building a supermajority. Um, in any public campaign, our task is to help people shift further along that spectrum to become active supporters. And in some ways, we as climate activists are really lucky because this graph actually underrepresent the level of support for our cause. So our cause, the levels of support in the community, are comparable to that for marriage equality before it was won. As Richard said yesterday, more than 60% of uh, our population agree that climate change is an emergency and that governments should mobilise all of society to tackle it. So why haven't we won yet? Two problems. 
One is that that support is unevenly spread. And in a country with compulsory voting based on electorates, it's not enough just to have the majority of people on your side nationwide. You also need the majority of people in the majority of places and you need that majority support to hold up when you start talking about specific solutions in the face of scare campaigns from vested interests who want to stop us. Two, even when you have that, as we currently do, latent support is not enough. People have to be willing to act on it. So let me just show you a very ugly graph which I think represents a closer to picture to where we are right now. So take voting as an emblem of acting on the actual concern about climate change. Voting Active support is either just under 50% if you look at the number of people voting for candidates or parties with either decent or half-decent climate policies, but it's more like 30% if you take people who say that they vote on climate change as their number one issue. Now that is a pretty bloody good start. It is a much bigger slice of the pie than those who are actively opposed to taking climate action. But of course, in between elections, politicians don't hear that much from this 30%. And they hear an awful lot from the lobby groups who are paid to talk to them day in, day out. And the Murdoch press and their friends in parliament make sure that those voices and the voices of that tiny little percentage of actively opposed are amplified across the country so that many people in many communities think that that little slice of the actively opposed is much, much larger than it is. They put a magnifying glass over that slice of the population. So what we need to do is increase the proportion of our active supporters who are not just voting on the issue but are actually taking other visible climate action in between elections. We need to make those people visible not only to their MPs but to their communities. That means that we are all in the recruitment business. Our job is to find those people and help them to become visible and effective spokespeople for our cause. And if we want the full emergency speed response to the climate crisis, we are also going to need to bring in some of those people who are on the fence, who tend to be very concentrated in marginal electorates to support or active support for our cause. So that also means that we're all in the persuasion business. Now before I talk about what active and effective persuasion looks like, I just want to fall in I just want to flag two traps that I think we can easily fall into as climate activists when it comes to this spectrum of allies and potential allies. One is that you have that nice little slice of active supporters, sorry I'll give them their label, there they are, um, spending all of their time talking to the actively opposed. <laughs> Hands up if this has ever been you. <laughs> My hand is right up. Um, so, uh, Obviously, it's very tempting. Um, in some cases, like in the case of deep canvassing, it can actually work. You take a really long personal conversation with your Uncle George, who's a deep climate sceptic, you may actually be able to get a 180 degree flip. But that is time that you are not spending on recruitment, on persuasion of people who are closer to you on the spectrum of allies. Um, here's another one that we often go to. Uh, that slice of active supporters spending more of their time talking to each other about why their plan is better 
I've also done this. This is, you know, this is, this is me. I'm pointing the finger here uh, about where our plans are better um, than we do talking to the people who are not yet active or who are neutral on our cause. Um, so if we want to actually build the supermajority that we need, uh, we definitely need to be spending more time on recruiting passive supporters to be active or persuading neutrals to change their views. Um, and there's a, a phrase from a great... A book called The Purpose Driven Church uh, that I really like about how a particular church in the US went from zero to 20,000 members. Uh, one of their core philosophies was grow without poaching. Um, and I really like that as a way of thinking about how we bring more people into the network of active climate activists. Um, so that's my pitch. We need a movement that is laser focused on the hard work of moving people along the spectrum of allies. There's lots of ways of doing that work, of shifting public opinion. I can get into some of my own experiences from election campaigns in Wentworth and Warringah in the discussion, if you like. Um, but here's what the psychological research says about what good persuasion work looks like. The willingness to back action on climate is based on these three key ingredients. One, the problem is bad, personal and present, and that is probably a big reason that we have seen such an influx of new climate activists now. It's flipped a bunch of those passive supporters to active support and the active supporters to really bloody active and freaked out and ready to do anything. Um, so, you know, the bushfires have definitely done that on number one. Two, the solution is good and will work. Um, and if you find that uh, people don't actually like the solution, don't think it's good for them, challenges their identity in some way, people will often just throw the perception of the problem out the windows. You really need number two, you really need number three. People often forget that something as simple as saying, I'm doing this, would you join me, could be the difference between people being passive and active supporters. Um, so I want to leave you with one more pitch based on Rebecca's research actually, which is that if you find yourself speaking to somebody who's on the fence about a problem, try a solutions first approach. There's a lot of reasons why people might be incapable of seeing a cloud unless they can see its silver lining. The phrase, I've got 99 problems and I don't want yours, sums it up. So many of the solutions to climate change are also solutions to other problems people might have in their daily lives. And if we want to build a supermajority, we might want to spend more time talking to those neutral folks, the people who are on the fence, about that. Thank you. Thanks so much, Miriam. Um, next, we have Simon Holmes Accord. Uh, if you don't follow Simon on Twitter, you should. It's both educational and informative because um, uh, he likes to stick it to everyone. <laughs> he doesn't let anyone get anything um, past him, and he's got uh, a bit of he's got wit and understanding behind him because he's one of Australia's leading energy commentators and analysts. He's a senior advisor at the Climate and Energy College, the University of Melbourne. He was the founding director of the Hepburn Wind and Embark. He's written for The Guardian and uh, goes on the drum and the business. Um, he's going to tell you a little bit more about what he's doing now, but he, uh, he's probably one of Australia's most passionate advocates for Australia's energy transition. And so welcome, Simon. Thanks a lot, Rebecca, and thanks everyone for turning out. I want to talk today about narratives, um, the importance of narratives, the things we believe largely because everyone believes them. Um, first thing I want to, and, and I can't dwell on any of these, because I'm going to talk about five of them really quickly. 
Firstly, it wasn't a climate election. Lots of people, including me, wanted it to be a climate election, but it wasn't. Um, we, we thought we had everything lined up to make it one. And if you remember, uh, last summer, the one before this, was also terrible. We had rainforests on fire, we had floods, uh, we, we had uh, mass fish kills, we had drought, we had mammal extinctions. Uh, we had, on one side, a government that had no policy, on the other side, we had a government that, had, that, that at least had light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, it f and a whole lot of other things outside the environment area all came together, uh, and it looked like it could have been a climate election. But no, it ended up being a presidential election. And I was given that uh, frame by, by a, a senior member of, uh, of the government that Morrison ran a presidential campaign. He hit all of his ministers. He neutralised climate policy by coming up with, with a climate solutions package which had a large number at the end and sounded to people as if at least he had something. He focused on an unpopular leader or a leader that the, the polls uh, consistently had said was less, was less popular. Uh, plus we had a $90 million campaign from uh, Clive Palmer uh, which, which, uh, managed to, you know, which, which was spent attacking uh, the opposition uh, and garnered 3.5% three and three and of the vote which was very useful. Uh, and there is at least a quarter of a billion dollars of pork barrelling um, which uh, to use the technical term corruption um, uh, so it wasn't a climate election as much as we wanted it to be. Number two, coal didn't define the election. Okay? There were only two seats in Queensland that flipped. Now you will have heard the narrative that Labor screwed up the election because they went hard on coal uh, and Queensland loves coal and that lost them the election. Only two seats in Queensland flipped. Okay? One of them was Herbert, Herbert Cathy uh, O'Toole's seat uh, up in Townsville. Cathy only won that by 37 votes in the 2016 election, okay, 0.02% margin. So didn't take much to swing that one. The other seat in Queensland was Longman, which is the area between Brisbane and Sunshine Coast. Uh, I think those folks there are more worried about franking credits and death taxes and all sorts of things and an unpopular leader. They're not, they're not coal huggers in, uh, in the northern suburbs and uh, the, the, the southern Sunshine Coast. Um, Two seats in Queensland flipped, two seats in Tasmania, northern Tasmania flipped. No one ever said, hey, northern Tasmania won, you know, won the election for the government, but there was just as much movement there. So this idea that, that coal won the election uh, and, and it's why Labor needs to backpedal on that, we can throw that narrative out. Next narrative, um, coal. It's not as big as you think it is. We have three types of coal uh, in Australia. We have met coal, metallurgical coal, which is used uh, to make steel making. There, uh, there are alternatives. Um, there are, there are growing, there's growing research into alternatives, but for right, right now, the vast majority of the coal worldwide is made with met coal. Australia is the largest exporter of met coal in the world. It's worth about three times as much as, uh, uh, by, um, by tonne uh, as thermal coal. Uh, and there's a, it's going to be needed for a good 10 to 30 years before there are alternatives. Um, then there's the black thermal coal, um, some of which, a small amount, we use uh, for our energy generation in Australia, but about 80% of it gets exported uh, largely to uh, China, India, South Korea. Um, uh, and, and then there's the brown coal, the, the wet mud, basically, that we burn in Victoria. Um, a senior German bureaucrat told me about, said about coal that they didn't understand why we spent so much time fighting against export coal in Australia because it said coal will leave Australia before Australia leaves coal. 
Okay? Uh, India and China have said that they want to ramp down imports and start using their domestic and they're moving to renewables. Uh, coal was only, export coal only represented 1.2% of GDP last year. Now, we often hear that 1.2% is such a small number it means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I don't think that. So, coal's not as big as you think. Um, quickly, myth mythology of the coal worker. Let's, we've got to be honest with them. The message is not that we're coming for them. It's that history is coming for them. Okay? The, all the demands for coal are going to phase out over the coming decades and uh, I think we, we can guarantee that we'll protect them. We're going to protect them more than we ever protected anyone in the car industry or that we protected milkmen or the public servants or the bank tellers, the checkout chicks, even the 20,000 people at Telstra that are being laid off in, in this two-year period that no one's even registered. 20,000 people Telstra's laying off. Uh, as, as Schumpeter said in uh, back at Economist back in 1942, capitalism is creative destruction. Uh, the coal sector is in the process of creative destruction. Uh, second last narrative, the future is not about sacrifice. Okay? We've all been given this frame for a long time. Um, now, you can have renewables, but how much extra are you prepared to have them? Or, or, or what are you prepared to give up in order to respond to climate change. We don't have that trade-off anymore. The advancements in technology, the reductions in price, and the opportunities for Australia uh, mean that we, we know how we're going to re rapidly reduce uh, emissions. Uh, our our uh, leading um, energy market operator has done more research on this than anyone else. They've set out a plan for how we can reduce emissions in the electricity sector by about 90% over the next 20 years, and they could go faster if they wanted to. And it doesn't cost much at all. In fact, PwC did some analysis on that, on that concept and found out that by making that investment, the economy grows more than if we don't. Lastly, I want to say, in a last narrative that we've got to get out there that crosses the political divide is that in a carbon-constrained carbon global economy, Australia wins. We are once again the lucky country. Right? We talk about these boundless plains in Australia. Well, they are, they are sun-drenched and they are windswept. Uh, and we have so much, so much boundless, as, 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 as I said. We have an embarrassment of clean energy riches. Our future is one of sustainable abundance if we want it. We are, we are once again the lucky country, and I think that's the narrative we need for the 2020s. Thank you very much. And last, we have Professor Carmen Lawrence. Um, probably last is not the right word because she's been first at so many things in her life. Um, the first woman Premier in Australia uh, and Treasurer of a state government. Um, she si shifted to federal politics where she played an extraordinary leadership role in health and in the status of women and many portfolios in opposition, including Indigenous Affairs and Environment. But for a lot of people who see her mainly as a politician, and a Labor politician, her involvement in the environment movement has been um, long and genuine. Um, she was the chair of the Australian Heritage Council between 2011 and 2016. She's the current president of the Conservation Council of Western Australia. And um, her work as a uh, professor at the School of Psychological Science at the University of Western Australia looks specifically at how we connect with climate change on a emotional and psychological level and it's work much worth reading even if you don't like reading academic work it's still very readable um, and she's very listenable too and she's here Carmen Lawrence
thank you, Rebecca, and I'll do my best. I've probably been teaching undergraduate psychology students for too long and have forgotten the art of speaking uh, extempore to an audience. When I thought about this question, mobilising across the divide and building a supermajority, the first question that occurred to me was, what is the divide? What are we talking about here? It's usually constructed around the acceptance or not of the occurrence of climate change, and Miriam's already outlined the reality of that. The reality is that most people accept that the climate is changing. There's a tiny minority who don't. Is it happening, in other words? And I have to say that divide is not a very large one. The major by far and away, the majority accept. Is it human-induced? And again, by far and away, the majority of Australians accept that and have done for a very long time. If you look back through the years, you'll see that survey after survey has confirmed that. The majority agree, have agreed and do agree that climate change is real and that it's human-induced, at least to some extent. Sometimes the divide refers to whether people have concern or worry about the seriousness of climate change and whether they think there is a need for action and how imperative that is. And certainly you'll find a range of views about that. And again, Miriam's pointed to some of that and Rebecca's own work shows that as well. That even when people say they're concerned about climate change, perhaps when they vote, they don't necessarily act on it. It's not necessarily number one priority. It's there, along with worry about childhood obesity, perhaps. It's not number one. The environment's flipped up and down the charts when it comes to Australia's concern about it. It's probably been elevated a little. I wouldn't exaggerate the extent of it by the, by the fires, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And it has waxed and waned over the years, from the 2007 election, where that was a climate change election, to it sort of disappearing from key consideration in recent elections. So there is a divide on concern and worry. People who are here, clearly deeply concerned, worried and see the need to act. And sometimes it refers to the, the, the divide, that is, a willingness to support various actions to mitigate climate change, including both individual and policy responses. We see big variations in any community about whether people are prepared to accept certain changes to their uh, way of living, to their industries, to their employment, in order to achieve a reduction in emissions. Some people are more ready to accept it than others, and very often they can be shifted. That's something where attitude change can be achieved reasonably quickly. But it's also an area where people often have very strong roots in identity. So if you've been a coal worker all your life, your father and your grandfather have been, even though Simon's right, this wasn't the, the coal election, nonetheless we've got to think about th those communities where we're asking them to shift very dramatically in not only what they do, but what they think about themselves. And human identity is one of those things that is often very difficult to budge. So at a superficial level they'll move, but if, you're, if your very identity is rooted in your employment, for example, or your place, then changes to that can be very threatening. And I guess that leads me then to ask, what predicts these views or propensities to act? Because that really gives us the, the power, if you like, as a movement to, to change. Obviously what's critically important here, and we've seen this, is voting intentions and political ideology underpinning which are values. We know the role of ideology is critical here, and it's not just about the, the party divide we see in Australia, it's across the globe. Uh, and when people support um, collective action and they're, if you like, collaborators, they're kind of left, if you like, they're more likely to support action on climate change than those who don't. And if the moral foundations are ones that they accept, equality, justice and so on, then it's much easier for them to embrace climate change. 
but we found in work that I did with a, a young colleague, Elizabeth, uh, Isabel Rosson, that it's possible to speak to conservatives, particularly about harm and fairness, which they value highly. There's a, there's a rump, and they tend to be the deniers who are free market fundamentalists. They're pr probably we shouldn't even bother talking to them, and that's Miriam's advice as well. But small c conservatives do care about harm and fairness and shouldn't be written off in this discussion. So that's a divide that's capable of being crossed if we talk uh, that language. And emotional engagement is important, and again, work I've done with some of my younger colleagues on the objects of care. If we can engage people uh, at the base of what it is that matters to them, and it may be about their identity, it may be about the, the natural environment, it may be about their community, there are a whole range of things about which people care deeply. They don't necessarily care about the, the objective characteristics of climate change, but the impact on their communities is profound, and that's what we've seen with the fires and the floods, that it's the threat. And I've done work on fire preparedness that shows very clearly that when people's places are threatened, they're more likely to take action to prepare their properties, for example, against the possibility of fire. So threat has to be there to those objects of care, but the emotional response is critical. If people don't give a shit, they're not going to act to protect the, the globe around them. And unfortunately, the sort of uh, political climate that we've created over a great many decades of individualism and people separating from one another, something that's accelerated perhaps by our social media, makes it more difficult. Um, there are a number of other things I could say, but we probably do that in response to questions. The critical thing here is that it's possible to bridge these divides by appeal to place, place protection, by appeal to the objects of care, by appeal to harm and fairness, and getting people to understand the fundamentals, if you like, of climate change, but not pointing out the weaknesses in other people's positions necessarily. It doesn't help. Most people don't like to be made to feel foolish. Most, the most powerful thing that any of us can do is to remember that we're social animals. And ultimately, people respond to the facts, particularly that those around them are taking action on climate change. You, as the member of a family in a small social group, have at your disposal the greatest power in that group. And seeking to expose people to the views that you have, very clearly when we've looked at the research, it shows that as an individual, I judge the need to take action on climate change, including voting, legislation, etc., on the basis of what you think I should be doing. And so any public exposure of my actions, uh, my voting intentions, my willingness to take action uh, within a small community that I value is likely to be very powerful indeed. Thank you. Is this on? It is. Great. Um, obviously, one of the many benefits about getting the kinds of people here together in the room is to make sure that they leave with some um, energy and practical advice about what they can do in their own lives um, in terms of whether it be about mobilising across the divide. So I'm going to ask all of you to perhaps reflect, given the biggest division, like the biggest thing in the way of this kind of supermajority, are those political partisan divides. The, the surveys show it and our parliament shows it. I'd like some, all of you to reflect about a bit about how you approach talking to people who might be on the conservative side of politics 
I might uh, be on the conservative side of voting or have a conservative worldview about climate. I asked this because I, I was having a conversation with um, John Hewson who said he's consistently talking to National Party members about the benefits of, for example, renewable projects in their electorate in a whole lot of... And he says they just don't want to hear it. So even a kind of a, uh, this is going to help you in your electorate and this is going to create jobs, he still talks about these psychological barriers. So we've got some significant <laughs> resistance, haven't we, to some of that stuff. So I'm interested in, in what works. Perhaps you, Miriam, because in your um, work, both as some in, in the area of policy, but also in advocacy and strategy, what do you say? Oh, you need a I'm glad you asked. Um, so we've been doing a lot of thinking about this um, and some of the practical tips. We actually did a, a webinar on climate activism for absolute begin beginners the other um, week and one of the hot tips we gave of like, okay, so who do people listen to on climate? They listen to people that they trust and respect. They listen to people like them and they listen to people who listen before they start talking. Um, there's actually another really great uh, phrase from that purpose-driven church thing, which is that people need to know that you care before they care what you know. Um, and I think that's where what Carmen was saying is so powerful, right? Like that sense of actually empathy. So you probably know if you're the kind of person who will be an effective messenger. So uh, in many cases, when you're talking about you know, who people trust, who people see as being someone that they have something in common with, the messenger is the message, which is why a lot of that constituency-based work is so important. So you can go actually on the Get Up website. There's a list of amazing constituency groups from farmers to climate action to veterinarians for climate action to parents for climate action. Um, and I strongly advocate that everybody find a group that reflects their identity because there's more and more of them popping up uh, because through those networks you can really identify with other people. The other thing you can do, obviously, is the place-based work. So just by the fact that you're in the same place, living in the same area as somebody else, you're a more trusted voice than people from outside that area. So I'm going to be provocative. Given, given that's what you've said, was the Adani convoy a good idea? I never thought the Adani convoy was a good <laughs> no, idea. I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming <laughs> you. But I suppose, and, and yeah, I, I have to say, I, I was um, involved and, I don't, and often how... How we perceive mm. why something happened and how mm. it played out can be very different from how it actually does. So I want to make that very clear. But I'm saying from that point of view, when we start to think about what are the most effective techniques for us to um, to open up a, a really genuine conversation that's going to be effective conversation with the people who may be have the most, to, you know, have have perhaps the um, issues around jobs and and mm. and old energy and new energy. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think that what I was saying, like having that laser-like focus on recruitment and persuasion, so shifting the passive supporters to actives, shifting the neutrals and bearing in mind that the messenger is the message in many cases. If you're not the right messenger, find one. Um, if you are not the right messenger, you can also start by listening before you talk, so finding that common ground and empathy yeah. that you can relate to, yeah. telling that personal story yeah. about why you personally feel so passionately about it that hits yeah. people in the gut. Also, one drink minimum for any conversation <laughs> on climate change. <laughs> it's like driving. <laughs> Simon. I, I cheat and try to bypass the conversation on climate change and go straight to the inevitability of energy transition. 
and uh, and the benefits that that are sitting in front of us. Uh, just just before Christmas, I was in in Germany and visited some some large industrial uh, industrial sites. Um, one one of them is um, ThyssenKrupp, which is a, a major German industrial. Went to their steel mill, 15,000 people working at uh, what looks very much like an early 20th century steel mill, and they have a plan to decarbonise completely by 2050. Now, they're very open that they, they don't know how it's all going to go. They've got a roadmap. Um, they, can, they show that they can do it. They're, they're, saying, you know, they're going to learn some things along the way, and the, the map will look different by the time they're done. But they, they are absolutely committed to turning the steel mill, which is a big user of met coal from Australia, uh, into using hydrogen instead. And one of the things they said is... Uh, Sorry, hydrogen. Yeah. hydrogen. Yeah. One of the things they said is we don't know where we're going to get that much hydrogen from. <laughs> Australia, <laughs> right? And, and I was in, uh, I was, I was in, in um, Japan uh, about three weeks ago at, at a green ammonia conference. Uh, ammonia, we, we can make ammonia with green, green ammonia with green hydrogen. Green hydrogen, of course, hydrogen doesn't have a colour. Green hydrogen means it's made with renewables. And uh, two, two companies in Japan, one was one of their largest shipping companies, MYK, and they've worked out that green ammonia is going going to be cheaper than the low sulfur fuel oil they have to burn um, and it's going, to be, it's going to be cheaper somewhere in the next five to ten years but they don't know where they're going to get all their green ammonia from. Australia, right? And, uh, and then their power stations, the coal power stations have a legislated target. They have to get more efficient every year and they, they can get more efficient with all sorts of mechanical tweaks but there comes a point where there's just no more efficiency you can get out of the coal. And what they, what they plan to do is co-fire with ammonium. So you squirt ammonia in and it displaces coal. Now, if the ammonia is coming from green hydrogen, effectively it'll be Australian wind and solar power that's going into these old boilers. And once again, they say, where are we going to get the hydrogen? It's Australia, right? So I talked... I mean, this, this is coming. These, these conversations are much further advanced in other countries. They're not sitting around arguing this stuff. They're absolutely committed to this and they're wondering where they're going to get the resources from. And that should be Australia. Sam, so, um, it's, it's interesting when you were talking about the German company you know, almost like throwing their hat over the wall and thinking this is where we want to get and, and solutions will start to develop as we go along. One of the interesting things that comes up from the surveys of conservatives is they're much more likely than other groups to believe that technology will develop to help us solve these problems. They've got a bit of a faith in technology that they might not necessarily have in other... Um, other kinds of things like politics. And that's, that's a bit of a trap because we get, we, we get told um, you know, uh, technology will solve us but we don't have the technology yet so let's just go and wait for that. And, and um, Bjorn Lomborg uh, is, is, is in Australia this week or... Yeah, and, and that's, that's his message. So do you want to explain who he is yeah, to the so team he, for people he, who don't know who he is? He's himself the sceptical environmentalist. He's a, I think he's a very dangerous man because he's, he, he doesn't... Um, uh, he, he, gives, he pretends to be an environmentalist but gives people excuses to do nothing. Um, uh, before the Copenhagen conference in 2009, he set up the Copenhagen climate consensus or something. It, sound, it sounded very noble and he had a whole lot of plans for what we should do about climate change. One of them was carbon pricing and, the other, and then there was, you know, one of them, I remember, was um, uh, marine cloud formation, which is squirting seawater into the air and hoping it makes clouds. Another one is spraying sulfur, having fleets of jets circling the earth spraying sulfur on us. And he got, he got Nobel laureates to rank all of them and they said that carbon pricing was the worst thing we should do and spraying us all with sulphur was the best. So that's, he, he's developed solutions like that and, um, and, and constantly runs the frame that renewables are great but until they work they should stay in the lab 
Um, and and that, that I think that, that's a common common narrative. The, what we what we know, it, it's like decarbonisation is the first seventy percent is really simple. We turn everything, we electrify everything, and we use renewables for that electricity. We have all of those technologies right now for the 70% of decarbonisation. So we should be pushing the go button. In fact, we have already pushed the go button. We are, people, we often say people argue about you know, if or if we should do it, when we should do it. Actually, we've started the energy transition. It's going faster in many other countries, um, but it, it is happening while there's this circus sideshow happening in Canberra and in yeah. the media. Yeah. Back to you, Carmen. I mean, some of the stuff you said in your, um, you know, address at the podium starts to gesture towards some of the things that the psychological work and um, has shown about what can be effective for breaking down some of those political partisan divides. And also, somebody with a long history in politics and an interesting, interesting environment throughout. I'm interested in any of your personal views. How does that, when the rubber hits the road, and yeah. the psychological, you've got the psychological studies, and then you've got the um, the controlled focus group slash um, sheltered workshop that is politics <laughs> and how does that work? Well, I, I guess I'm always split on these questions because on the one hand, I mean, I'm the, it's a long time ago now, the daughter of a farmer, um, grew up in the bush, I have a lot of sympathy with people whose lives are being overturned by what's happening at the moment. But I'm also aware of the fact that they, like many people who are, if you like, uh, immersed in the conservative milieu, find it very difficult to accept the uh, activism around climate change. And so part of what I'm always thinking is how, do, how could I talk to my father if he were still alive or to his mates? You know, what would they accept as a reasonable argument? And I think you're right. For people like that, uh, an appeal to technological improvement is important, but also respect. I think the important thing is to, you know, to understand that every, every one individual that you encounter is likely to have arrived at the position that they occupy in reasonably good faith. I mean, I'll make exceptions to that, we all will. But most of the people you encounter as a citizen, they're not, they're not out there you know, trying to make trouble. They deeply hold these views. So you need to respect the position they come from. And that's true whether it's voters or politicians speaking to them or business people or whatever. And that you're likely to make a lot more progress if you pose some of these dilemmas as questions. I mean, the Stop Adani thing was wrong for all sorts of reasons, not least because it was conf confrontational. And it was confronting the wrong people. If it were confronting Adani himself, I would have had no trouble with it, and that's my split personality. So confronting the big corporates who are doing the damage, the Woodsides, the Chevrons, the Adanis, in Western Australia are very conscious of the damage that's being done by those large companies. Confronting them and destroying their reputations and their livelihoods, I'm happy to do that, but the people who work for them and the people who work around them, you've got to talk to knowing that there's a big question on their, their minds. And the question on many people's minds is, what do I do next? And I think we can throw that question back to people and say, what do you think the future of coal is? What do you think your community is going to, going to be doing in the next 10 or 20 years? And very often you'll find they'll wrestle with this, whether it's drought, salinity, climate change. We're doing work in Western Australia with people's responses to climate change than the impact it has on their values and what they care about. And clearly, if you put climate change up there as the first question you ask them, or the first statement you make, they stop talking to you. But we've got them to show us what it is about their communities they love, value, what it is about their communities they would like to retain, what it is in their communities they see threatened, and then what threats do you see in those communities? And the answer is that climate change then comes up 
as a fairly important threat, whether it's because of fire or drought or whatever. But if you start the conversation with some of these more conservative groups by the threatening stop word, then you don't get anywhere. And I think that's true whether it's politicians talking to them or business or whomever might be seeking to persuade them. That none of us likes to be considered you know, a raving lunatic or an idiot. We like to be respected uh, and be taken seriously. And if the conversation starts from that position, you get a long way and people are willing to shift. Um, you would know this, Carmen. There were the, the partisan gap on, on attitudes to climate change, particularly on the kind of more dismissive um, denial spectrum in both the US and Australia, was, was once not that big. Like the partisan divide wasn't that big. And then it got bigger. <laughs> How do we reverse that? Um, reverse that? Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about the importance of breaking the nexus of uh, well, donation reform and breaking the kind of um, undue financial leverage that the fossil fuel industry has in politics. But has there been anything we, we haven't talked about over these last couple of days about trying to make this not the left-right issue that it's become? I don't know. I think all the terrain's <laughs> probably been traversed. But, but that, that partisan divide uh, is partly built on values, but if you look around the world, they don't translate into opposition to climate change policy. You know, when, when you look at Western Europe and Scandinavian countries, it's an anglophone problem by and large, and even then you'd have to exclude the United Kingdom and now New Zealand, so it's starting to be Canada, the United States and Australia who are playing the denial game. And it's really, if you look at it, it's, it is pretty linked to the power of the fossil fuel companies. We can't overlook the importance of power operating in our communities. They have, they have individual wealth, they have the resources in the media, they have the institutional power that comes with donating and, and seriously perverting our political structure. So political reform is an important part of all this. And I'm not sure that we're going to get anywhere without shining that beam onto the big exercises of power that the ones who are influencing public policy and strategy, okay, you can build a movement from below and I'm all in favour of that, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's a disproportionate amount of power residing in the hands of people who will not, as a matter of moral responsibility, take action on climate change. In fact, a sociologist I was reading this week uh, used the word evil, which is something that I eschew normally, but evil meaning morally bad, saying these are morally bad acts and we should call them out. Simon, you spent a lot of time in the broader business community. Um, my perception is their views are shifting. Am I, I mean, and have shifted over the last 10 years on these questions. But is that? Yeah, I was saying, saying um, in, in a session yesterday that it, it much less frequently now we, we come across someone in the business community who is an overt climate denier. Uh, it, you know, the, the, the dinosaurs are retiring. Uh, there's, there's the great um, Max Planck quote that science advances one funeral at a time. Right? <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's too slow for the climate. Too, too slow for the climate. But it's only, it's only five years ago that we had um, uh, Dick Warburton ran the Renewable Energy Target Review. Um, um, Morris Newman was head of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council. These guys are on, they're, they're on the outer, right? They're, 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 
they're they're so they're, they're out of the zeitgeist or out of you know, one one foot in the grave. Sorry to say. Um, uh, so yes, there's still there's there, there's still a, a, a boys' club uh, in in the ASX boardrooms. Um, and, Gina <laughs> and, and Gina Reinhardt. And and Gina, love that you know, people used to call the the Nats the agrarian socialists. Uh, I heard someone recently call them e- extractive socialists. Now, right? They're no longer remember that before the election when uh, I think McCormack was asked on on um, maybe it was the project to name one. One one time that the Nats had put the farmers' interests above mining interests, and he couldn't think of a single one. Right? Um, so, but but this you may, we talked to um, Carmen and you, you were talking before about sort of partisanship uh, on this issue. It, it is a mistake to think that the coalition are all anti-progress uh, and Labor is all pro-progress. You know, when when when. Um, yeah, the, when the, the National Energy Guarantee, which I wasn't a, a fan of, but it was the most progressive thing that the coalition had done on, on climate for a long time. When that went before their party room, there are only about 10 uh, out of about 90 or so MPs who opposed that. It was overwhelmingly uh, the party decided to go with the National Energy Guarantee and then the, the 10 um, blew up the party, um, you know, like, like terrorists. It was, give us what we want, uh, or we'll blow up the party. Uh, just earlier this week, we had, um, we had 20 members of, of Labor, uh, the, the Otis group, uh, meeting, meeting in Canberra, a, a pro-coal group. So it's, it's, it's a small but significant rump in both major parties that are, that are holding us back. Mary? I just want to say that if you happen to live in either the seats of uh, a marginal Liberal MP or a Liberal MP where you know there's strong support for climate action in your community or in one of the seats uh, of any of the members of that Otis group, I don't know not all of the names of the leaks, but at least some of them have, um, then you're incredibly powerful. Um, so doing that work of identifying who the influential voices are to the undecided in your community, the people who are likely, because the same people who are likely to be of influence to the MP will also be of influence to the, their voters and you know especially their soft voters. If you can find those people and get them out and proud and public about the need for stronger climate action from the party um, uh, that you know is represented in your community, that is incredibly powerful. Mm. I want to just do a quick plug actually because we're doing a training on Monday night on climate conversation, which, is which Rebecca has kindly agreed to guest star in. I don't know if that's um, a plus. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where we'll be talking about how you can go and have those conversations with folks in your community. So, um, Since we're giving plugs, I, one thing that everyone here could do to make, uh, could make a difference is, is go to the website behind Zali Stegel's bill, climateactnow.com.au. Uh, there's a very easy mechanism where you can email your local MP and tell them that you want them to support a, a zero net emissions by 2050 target. Now I know zero net emissions by 2050 may not sound enough, and it's not enough. Uh, let's have that conversation later. But this is the one thing we have in the current body politic that can make a real difference. So go to climateactnow.com.au and lend your voice okay. to it. And I would just add to that, and people who are activists in this room would know that. Make sure that you don't send a standard email. Make sure you send something tailored. Um, and try and find a way to, to, to distinguish yourself from what a lot of, uh, having worked in MPs' office, think this is just the usual inner city turmeric latte drinking person that I can ignore. Find a way to connect your concern to, you know, um, you know, 
your, your involvement in a local sporting club or faith group or anything like that, anything to shock them out of their... We're talking about barriers. The, the political class still consistently think that this is only really an issue for a particular type of person. So when we hear different kinds of voices, different kinds of groups come out, that's really important. Um, how are we going for time before questions? Right, I just uh, one, just very, okay, no, it will let questions happen. I won't um, make too much, I won't take up time. Oh, I had so many questions. This lady here with the glasses, stand up. Hi, I work with one of those constituency-based um, groups, um, but even within that there is diversity among um, people's opinions. So what I'm wondering is, is there any quick way, if we went to in a room of 25 people who we were going to have a conversation with, is there any quick way of gauging before we go into that conversation um, where they're at on the spectrum? Because I'm familiar with other kind of audience segmentation models where you can do like a quick three-question survey and it tells you which segment you're in. So I'm wondering if there's any way of kind of assessing that quickly before you go into the conversation so you can tweak it accordingly. I know that Climate for Change actually do that with their amazing, um, yeah, conversations. Kat, that they, do you want to stand up? <laughs> show people. Kat runs Climate for Change. Extraordinary organisation encourages. Yeah. 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 So they actually have a survey that they use when they're bringing groups together so they can identify what the mix is of the people who are alarmed or concerned or wavering. I should say we've just developed the survey. So. so do you want to just say that again? Um, I was just saying we, we haven't used the survey in our conversations yet but we have just done some work trying to find the questions to identify those groups. So we're, and we're still learning but... The yeah. question is, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? I was just um, note, um, paying attention to Miriam, the slides where you said, you know, these are the things, it's, it's bad, it's personal, um, there are solutions that are good and will work, and, but maybe switch the order depending, you know, start with the solutions first. So I think if we can be a bit more successful, if we switch the order or switch the focus slightly, that's what I'm kind of interested in because we're really operating on a very kind of you know, hyper-targeted micro level, so I want to be as effective as I can in having that conversation with people. It's definitely easier to do on the basis of one-to-one -one conversations to, you know, <coughs> like listen and reflect and then you really get a sense of where people are in a group context. I mean, I know that um, Katarina's group has uh, done a lot of work just having very slow, very personal conversations where, you know, they show a half-hour film, you know, the host tells an incredibly moving personal story about why they went, and that, I think, helps establish that sense of common ground before people get into the conversation. <laughs> and we just want to be, before we work out, we just want to be having been a big fan of segmenting the population according to how to feel about climate change. We don't want it to be so intense that people feel like they've been labelled. <laughs> The, the alarm sit over there, you've got the alcohol and the cigarettes and the concerned here, you've got the cupcakes. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to make them feel a bit too like they've all been divided. Um, but it's useful to start to think about what's the good starting point and what's going to be the effective tone. So it is important. All right. Sorry, um, can I just quickly yeah, add to that? And that is, once you get people in a group, of course, things change. You've got a whole lot of people coming in with their individual positions, but once you get a group dynamic going, you'll find that people move to cooperate, for example, depending on some fairly simple principles that apply to everybody. So, you know, feedback about, you know, social norms, 
shifts people all in the same direction. Having clear ideas about thresholds, you know, what's the tipping point? You can, within a group of, and you'd see, see this in focus groups, it can contaminate your research, in fact, because everybody moves in certain directions simultaneously. So don't underestimate the power of the group. Right. Yeah. So just We've got lots of questions. Is there for... Uh, thank you. Um, when we refer to mobilising across the divide, we quite often refer to the partisan politics in this country, particularly the major party duopoly. And it, I think it's a fairly salient point that the um, Climate Act has been introduced by an independent. Is the um, aim of getting a lot more climate committed independents into our parliaments one of the ways that we can get genuine representation of the existing majority of Australians that support strong action on climate change? I'd love a short response from everybody on that. Uh, maybe, but I, uh, there'll be some seats where that's an appropriate um, response and where you'll get a response uh, along the lines of climate change and others you won't. I don't see it shifting many. You know, it, it, it's for certain seats where there's a, that small c conservative, if you like, pro interested in protecting the community from harm and trying to ensure fairness for constituents uh, and financially um, conservative as, as Zali describes herself, but that only describes a relatively small number of seats in Australia. So I think we, we can't ignore the major parties. The solution is not going to come from more thinking independence. What we Sadly. need is Tony Abbott to be the Member of Parliament for a range of different kinds <laughs> of seats and then... Well, we've got Craig Kelly. Um, um, I, uh, as, as you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm passionate about this strategy. I, I agree with Carmen that it's only a very small number of seats, but that's actually all we need to make a difference. If Karen had got back in in Wentworth and one other of the independents, we would, this, this whole, but I'm not sure, this, this would actually just be a sustainable living festival and we'd, be, we'd, we'd have like 10 people listening to us thinking, what are you talking about? We, we almost had a very different parliament. We came incredibly close. The independents appeal to, uh, I, I, I think the, the independents that really appeal are the, the, um, the very moderate centre-right, uh, you know, Zali, Zali Steggles. There's, there's uh, a big constituency for those people in Australia who are increasingly alienated by what they're being offered by the Liberal Party. So, yeah, it's been a big focus of mine. I, I, I was one of a group of people who set up Climate 200, which was uh, an effort to bring political funding in, into independence. Um, we did that in the last election and we're going to do that uh, even more in the next election. So stay tuned. Miriam, very quickly before the person whose hand is up. So I worked on both um, GetUp's Wentworth by-election campaign and also um, led the um, GetUp campaign in Warringah against Tony Abbott. Um, and in both of those cases, uh, although we were campaigning against the incumbent, you know, in the Wentworth case, it was because we wanted to establish that there should be a political penalty for um, the governing party deciding to toss its leader uh, for attempting even the vaguest semblance of climate action. Um, and obviously in the case of Warringah, because of Tony Abbott's track record of destruction on climate, um, and in both of those cases, even though we were campaigning against the incumbent rather than for the independent alternative, it was so clear how powerful having uh, independent from the area with strong community support um, who was able to tell that story of how they could better represent the values of the electorate, how much difference that made in both of those election campaigns. So I do think that there is a real hunger out there for local representation but it's important to remember that there's no shortcuts to the process of actually having the community be there, be hungry for somebody who is going to represent them properly on the climate solutions that they want. So we still have to do that hard yards of 
shifting the community. Yeah. Gosh. Thank you. In the Latrobe Valley, uh, just transition is considered by the people to uh, employed up there to cop $150,000 a year salary. When Ghana was talking, Latrobe Valley Mayor stood up and said, we must produce hydrogen from coal. Doctors aren't even game to put their hand up and say they are concerned about the environment. How do you talk to that type of person? Um. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not sure I quite got the characterisation of, 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 of that kind of, kind of person, but um, we'll, we'll, say, we'll say a couple of things about the Trobe Valley. Unfortunately, they, they've been, so many times they've been sold a pup with coal to something technology. They've been told that we can, uh, we, we will make fertiliser out of it or we'll make um, uh, diesel out of it or, um, uh, and now there's a, propo there, there is a project, a very small research project to make hydrogen out of the brown coal. Um, a lot of people went up in arms about it, but it, it's tiny. It's going to produce three, three tonnes of hydrogen and ship them to Japan and it's going to cost $500 million. There's no way that this that that will you know I, I would I would give very 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 long odds that that project will ever proceed, um, but it unfortunately has sold a repeated narrative to the Little Tribe Valley that there's a future for them in coal, and really there isn't. So the responsible thing is to explain to people why there's not a future there. Uh, and to the Victorian government's credit, they set up the Trobe Valley Authority, which uh, I'm, I'm sure those close to the action will be able to tell me all the things it hasn't done, but what it, what it has done is given a great focus on making sure those who left Hazelwood have transitioned as painlessly as possible, uh, and, and um, you know, the unemployment numbers in the Trobe Valley are better now than they were before Hazelwood closed. Yeah. So it's a real credit to those who have been working on just transition down there. Right. Miriam? Um, so a specific plug for the Voices for the Valley who have been doing fantastic work pushing for those solutions there. Um, lend them your support. Um, uh, and uh, on the you know, doctors speaking out about the environment, there's obviously Doctors for the Environment and the Climate um, and Health Alliance, both fantastic groups. If you know a doctor or a health worker who you think might be willing to speak out on climate change, find them, get them to join one of those groups, become an extra spokesperson. And sorry, just, yeah, just that the, the use of the health frame is very important in a more general sense. Uh, we all know if you can point to the benefits of uh, moving away from burning fossil fuels in particular, uh, reducing the, the use of um, the conventional motor vehicles in our cities, it's the most underreported disease that we have in terms of public awareness, and that is the effect that air pollution has on the lungs, particularly of young children, and the bushfires have recently emphasised that. Looking at the world through that frame changes a lot of people's minds, as I say, because of the question of harm and particularly harm to children. So the doctors, I think, have been fantastic. They've, they've made some very strong statements collectively about climate change and there's now a real push on amongst those respiratory physicians who are interested particularly in childhood development to start to lean hard on politicians who are ignoring the problem. I mean, I think the gentleman might have been perhaps, I don't want to... I'd put words in your mouth, might think, how do you talk to somebody whose expectations of transition are so incredibly high or who just don't want to think about it? And I suppose that's the question that you went to, Miriam, about perhaps sometimes the energy spent trying to convince those people is, is wasted energy given there's other people who might want to have the conversation. Over there. Hi. Yeah, just... Um, it, it sort of follows on... Is that on? Oh, 
Um, I'm just wondering where something like a living wage might come into, um, you know, given that one of the biggest barriers is jobs and, um, and job loss and, and if that forms part of this discussion as well. Um, I mean, it would make so much sense to be campaigning for a job guarantee in coal regions, like in areas where, where there is high levels of uh, coal employment um, and where they are going to be left high and dry. Like obviously the mining industry and their mates in parliament are really fond of using coal workers as a human shield to protect them from taking any responsibility for the consequences of their actions on everybody uh, and the failure to actually plan for the fact that the world wants to quit a thing that is, you know, killing people now and killing our climate as well. Um, so, like, in those areas, campaigning for some kind of job guarantee makes heaps and heaps of sense. I think it would be a really good idea. Um, I, I think that a, a significant number of the people who, who, who complain about jobs, uh, in coal jobs, uh, are the people who complain about uh, or, or say that coal's going to lift Indians out of poverty or are worried about um, asylum seekers drowning. Um, I think they are a human shield uh, used. It is, it's very real for, um, for the, the coal workers and I, I think Miriam's idea of a, coal, of a jobs guarantee for them is a really good way of, of neutralising that. Um, but we've you know, also got to accept, uh, just understand that it's being used as a tool uh, in, uh, in this debate uh, and so finding ways to neutralise it is really important. Just, just to, sorry, just to add, add to that, I mean, I think the critical thing is that a lot of those workers have enjoyed very high wages, so we can't ignore that as a, as a potential negative for them. They, and I think you made this point to me, Rebecca, in conversation, that they look at the jobs in renewable energy and see them as kind of second-rate jobs compared to the ones they have. So addressing that question, I mean, they can't necessarily be sustained uh, with the sort of salaries that many of them have enjoyed in the resource sector, perhaps not so much now, and, you know, poor buggers, a lot of them have been fly in, fly out in my state in the, the oil and gas industry. They're pretty horrible social lives they live, but they do earn big wages. So it, you have to pay attention to that and a jobs guarantee might work. Although part of me says, you know, all the poor other buggers who've lost employment over the last, you know, 20, 30 years um, of changes to our economy have not had that sort of treatment. But if we're realistic and we want to achieve change in a way that doesn't, you know, have a huge wall of resistance, then I think we need to be very careful and thoughtful about that. Yeah. Um, I would like to put forward another idea. I'm wondering whether going uh, with the strategy of making conversations with people is actually now going to work because my, um, my experience is that a lot of people don't want to talk about it and the reason why they don't want to is that it makes them fearful, um, they don't understand it, and they actually believe other people should be doing this. It's their job. And therefore, why, why aren't they doing it properly? And that if there was some way in which they could know that there were people who they trusted who were doing the job properly, you wouldn't have to have these conversations yeah. because on the whole they believe that climate um, change needs to be dealt with. Yeah. And so I'm putting forward to ask your opinion on this, whether getting leaders from all walks of life who have a national declaration where everyone can sign up to it, 
where this is not party-based, it's mainstream, and they go, we can trust these people, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're public servants, they're whatever, and there are lots of them, and we join with the strength, and they can be more trusted. Any reflections? There's, there's, we're, we're, seeing, um, we're, we're seeing the emergence of a whole lot of uh, uh, vocational groups declaring climate emergencies. So the engineers declare, I think, a fantastic one um, uh, that started up relatively recently. I went to their website yesterday and there are about 1,800 engineers who have signed up and about 180 companies have signed up declaring a climate emergency and saying that they are, they are uh, going to work towards solving the climate emergency and not contributing to the climate emergency. Um, there's an architects declare movement, there's uh, vets, the doctors for environment, uh, there's a lawyers group, all of these professional groups. So it's no longer just ACF, WWF, Friends of the Earth and, you know, and Greenpeace. It's, it's now vocations, people we trust who are coming through with these. And I think that's, it's great to see those non-traditional constituencies speaking up and normalising that we are in a climate emergency. One of the things that you're pointing to is the sort of the, the need to trust a certain group of people um, to speak and to act on climate change. But response in emergencies typically requires everybody at some level. And that sense of a personal responsibility to act, I think, is something that we have to try and engender. It may only be contacting your local MP, but um, part of the problem we've had with climate change is the problem of, if you like, the freeloaders, the people who haven't stepped up. And what we're trying to do is engage those people, not by confronting them, but by engaging them. And for instance, uh, through these bodies, uh, pointing to the very many people, this is the social consensus, because a lot of people fearful about speaking up because of the noisy b bastards out there. And there's this false consensus. The noisy bastards think they represent the majority. In fact, they represent a minority. But it has the effect of creating a spiral of silence so that people who hear that noise out in the community, whether it's you know, generated by the Murdoch press or just by you know, drunken conversations over a dinner table, they feel as if they're in a minority and they're afraid to speak up. So reinforcing with them the view that they are the majority, this is the, this is the mainstream opinion, and you need to get on board to do your little bit, whatever it is, even if it's contacting your local member, and that it's only by cooperating that we uh, achieve these outcomes. And a lot of the interesting work shows that once you get that public statement of consensus, and once you make sure that people understand that, they're willing to take whatever action fits in with their you know, capacity. And not everyone has the same capacity. Not everyone wants to argue the climate science because they don't understand it. They probably don't understand, as I don't fully, how, what happens when you turn on an electric light. I mean, my knowledge of physics is pretty scanty. But I sure as hell know, you know that burning fossil fuels is destroying the planet because I have trust in those people who've done the, the very serious work uh, that's unpicked this. And I think that's what we need to communicate, that trust and not allow it to be undermined as it has been by some of the very you know, considerable work that's been done by major corporations with a vested interest funding think tanks and organisations to put uh, disinformation out there, which then silences people because they think that they don't have a skin, a skin in this game. Yeah. Just quickly for Miriam, I think we've got time for one more question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that having those trusted, influential voices speaking out on the need to act at emergency speed, whether it's at a national level or a local level, is absolutely important and incredibly effective. Um, but my new mantra is no shortcuts. 
right? We don't actually have a choice but to build the supermajority of support that we need in all of our communities if we're going to win all of the things that we want on the scale and speed that science demands. Um, so that means we actually all have to be in that business of persuasion and recruitment. And I know that can sometimes be hard. Um, it doesn't all have to be conversations. Some of it can be around visibility, right? So if you feel uncomfortable asking, saying you know, something as simple as, I'm doing this, would you like to join me? Which I reckon is a pretty non-threatening thing to do. You know, they feel free to say, no, I'm not encouraging people to harangue each other, mm. um, uh, but just simply to put out that offer and the invitation. You know, I'm doing this, will you join me? Uh, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, you can think about where you can be visible in your views and in what context that's going to have a lot of influence. Maybe it's like all always wearing a climate t-shirt at your local soccer club, right? There are a lot of things that people can do to influence um, people's perception uh, of reality so that it's closer to the actual reality, which is that the majority of people want this action. All right, one more question. Um, so my question leads on directly from that actually and it's really about action at the local level and, and trying to create a, a sense of mobilisation for people in my electorate, which is um, New South Wales, rural west of Canberra. Um, after the fires, we had some workshops, our local uh, climate action group had some workshops around how to do the letter writing, make it personal. We sent them all off uh, to our esteemed Minister for Energy and Emissions Reductions, Angus Taylor. Um, so we have a bit of momentum, but we have our federal member who is not leading, I don't need to say any more about that. It's, for us, it's mobilising one side of the divide and keeping them going with that kind of leadership. So my question is around, we're doing all those things. How do you keep going? Time for you to talk to Simon about um, funding your campaign as the independent candidate against <laughs> Angus Taylor. <laughs> Too many people have said that to me. My partner I'm only, said no. I'm only, I'm only slightly joking, right, in that. So what's yeah. his margin? Uh, well, it's a conserve. I'm not exactly sure of the margin, and I would have thought that he would be out by now, but he's still there, even as, as, as the minister. But, um, yeah, but there's no one there willing to stand up. There's no one there willing to stand up, and I... Sorry, I'm so sorry. You just stood up to ask a question and now you are the new member for... No, no, no. Sorry. I'm really sorry. Because maybe Miriam is a good person to start to talk, to start to address what was this lady like rather than be harangued by a mob into running for parliament. I mean, I'd go back to that thing of the people who are influential on an MP are the same people who are influential on their voters. So when you're doing that, think about how to make that work visible to the people who are likely to be maybe a little bit sceptical about Mr Angus Taylor, given everything he's been up to lately. Um, and so make, figuring out ways of making that as visible as possible. One of the things that I saw in Warringah, long before we decided um, to get involved as GetUp, actually, was the fantastic Time's Up Tony campaign, um, where people just covered the electorate with Time's Up Tony merchandise to the point where everybody could see that there was a groundswell. Uh, there are a lot of ways to... Yeah, make the work of the people who think like you highly visible so that people recognise how popular that view is. Time's up, Taylor. <laughs> um, 
that's, that's, that's very something that's I would my support. new campaign slogan, right? <laughs> Excellent, good. Right. I would definitely, I would definitely support that campaign. <laughs> um, going in, going into the last election, there there was an incredible scandal that Taylor was at the at the centre of the the uh, 80 million dollars paid for water that doesn't exist, will never exist, uh, the Watergate scandal. Uh, it it was huge on social media. It got a really good run on the project and, and, and then a pretty good run uh, in, in most mainstream media. Um, Taylor's vote didn't budge at all, um, didn't, didn't have any impact at all. So, uh, and, and there was a good independent running in Hume, um, uh, uh, Hugh Kingston, who I think is at the, at the conference. Yeah, he uh, didn't have a great representation though, Dan. No, didn't have a strong campaign. Mm. Um, di didn't have, uh, uh, di wasn't widely known, but you know, a strong campaign takes uh, years and probably several elections to put together. So I hope he has another go and it goes from 5% to 10 to 25 and then, and then topples. But, uh, and I hope there are other independents who try in that area. And there's a fantastic Labor member there, um, Aoife Champion, um, young, young, um, she's got the initials A Champion. So you know, vote for A Champion. You couldn't, couldn't, um, um, very, very strong. But if you've got 52, 3% uh, voting for someone so covered in scandal that uh, shows just how many people in that area are disengaged. So it's not, it's, it, it, um, changing that doesn't just happen at the election. It's got to be a campaign that's, that starts right now. But who knows whether he even make it to the election. He's got, you know, still got some more troubles ahead of him, I think. Can I just one, make one little point? And that is that, you know, in the, in the local campaigning you're doing, it's very important that you focus on um, giving people wins, you know, writing to the minister and being ignored, um, you know, petitions that go nowhere. People can sometimes feel discouraged and give up. So, I mean, the sort of thing that both of you have said, I, I would reinforce that you, f you find things you can do that start to move the dial and where people can see that they're having an effect. It may not be all the way to the... Uh, the end of the road, but it's it's a significant progress because we know as human beings, if you it's all very well to set a goal, which might be you know getting rid of Angus Taylor as the local member, uh, but taking smaller steps along the way means that you're likely to have that sense of efficacy, to use the, the psychological term, reinforced, and that's absolutely critical if you're going to build momentum. Uh, people can easily feel defeated and discouraged and disempowered uh, if what they do seems not to be producing any effect. So it's important to craft tasks that they can undertake that really do seem to make a difference. I think we're, are we done? Yep. Please thank my fantastic panelists. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.